This last week, I was blessed to be able to take a few days off with my family uh, to simply decompress. And when the Rasmussen's decompress, usually it means Hans takes a nap. Um, But uh, we do a lot of movie watching. At least one day of movies is involved. And one of our favorite, one of my favorite, and it's now becoming one of the kids' favorites, and Kelly's as well, uh, is Fiddler on the Roof. Anybody ever seen that? Okay. (laughs) Tradition. Um, So uh, I love that movie. And one of my favorite scenes in it is uh, the scene where Tevya, the main character, is talking to Lezer Wolf. Okay, how many of you remember that scene? All right, a few of you? Okay, this might prompt your memory a little bit. Uh, they're talking about the potential marriage between Lezer Wolf, this older gentleman who's a butcher, uh, and Tevya's eldest daughter. And Tevya at one point says, Today you may want one, but tomorrow you may want two. And the problem is, is that their context is different. You see, Tevya thinks he's going to talk about the daughter being given away, or uh, excuse me, Lazar Wolf thinks he's talking about the daughter being given away, and Tevya thinks he's talking about Lazar Wolf uh, buying his latest milk cow, okay? So you can see how signals would get crossed. And so Tevya says, today you may want one, but tomorrow you may want two, thinking he's talking about cows. And Lazar says, uh, what would I do with two And Tevya says, uh, the same thing you'd do with one. And so Lazar Wolf, his eyes kind of go weird, like, this guy's gross, right? And then you keep going with the scene, and Tevya, uh, 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 Lazar Wolf tells Tevya, I'm lonely, Tevya. And he says, Rev Lazar, what are you talking about? How can a little cow keep you company? And Lazar Wolf says, little cow, is that what you call her? And Tevye responds, but that is what she is. What are you talking about? And then Lazar Wolf says, I'm talking about your daughter, Seidel. Oh, and now the context is set. It's one of the favorite comedic instruments and tools of great authors and screenwriters. Two people seemingly talking about the same thing, uh, but really their context is so different that it's confusing. And this is yet another story uh, that speaks to us how important context is. How many of you would like someone to jump into your phone, into one of the conversations on your, your, in texting, and jump into the conversation midway? They might get an odd opinion of you or the person you're texting with. Context is important. And the week before last, we looked at Isaiah 52 and 53, and we saw the suffering servant. The one we know as Jesus, we saw him inaugurate a victorious kingdom and purify his people through his death on the cross, taking injustice upon himself because he was innocent to prove the love of God towards those of us who aren't innocent. And in so doing, we saw that he produced a kingdom of servants. And this is God's plan. This was God's way of defeating evil, sin, and death. And and so many of us question what his plan is, what his work is. And he calls us, as we saw last time, to sacrifice everything as a reflection of what he did, his goodness and reconciliation and justice. But see, this wasn't just one random story that we covered a couple weeks ago. We didn't just pull it out of the air and make it one story amidst a book of unlinked stories. What we did was we looked at the story. You see, this entire book that you hold in your hands is one story made up of 66 books that all has the same context. And every part of this Bible plays into that one story. And so as we go to Isaiah 54 today, we must understand the context of what he's going to say to catch the full glory and splendor of this amazing passage. But maybe even more important this morning, 
in terms of practical application for us. I want to paint a picture and context around God's covenant promises to you. How many of you have something hanging in your home or a bumper sticker or something that refers to God's promises or maybe a book, right? How many of you do? Many of us do. We have the tile that says God keeps his promises, right? In our kitchen or something. And those are good, good things, but I, I really feel like sometimes when I'm talking to people about God's promises, they're talking about a milk cow and I'm talking about a daughter. And they mix them up and they confuse their context. And I think we unfortunately have conversations with God personally, much like Lazar Wolf and Tevye, where God is telling us he is faithful and yet we question his faithfulness because we believe he's talking about something other than what he promised. And so I think for us in practical application today, it's going to be really good for us to figure out the context. So let's start working through the context of Isaiah 54 by looking uh, at, at this fact. The first thing you can... Um, write down today is this. The overarching theme of the Bible is the Lord's covenant faithfulness. The overarching theme of the Bible is the Lord's covenant faithfulness. Now, as a Christocentric church, meaning Jesus is our focus, I think sometimes we lose sight of this fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's covenant faithfulness. That Jesus is God and that he is showing us he loves us and he keeps his vows to us. And and we forget that sometimes. And so I really want to focus in on this today. Let me show you what I mean. Marriage is used throughout the word as a picture of God and his people over and over and over and over again. And the reason is because marriage is at its heart, at its base. What is it? It's a covenant. It's a promise. It's a vow. And so marriage is a metaphor for his covenant with his people. Uh, think, for example, of this. Uh, I've had the honor of doing five marriages or five weddings this uh, uh, summer, and so this has come up a lot, but look at it with me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. He's speaking about God and mankind being reflected in the midst of the covenant faithfulness of a husband and wife. But wait a minute for a second. All of you who are single, I want you to answer this nice and loud. Is God only found in married couples? No, absolutely not. And the church confuses that sometimes and sometimes makes single people feel like second citizens because they're not married. The reality is, is God is found in every one of us because his image is embedded in us. And so what is it about marriage that makes it different? Well, it's because in marriage there is a focus on covenant faithfulness. Now, we all have that within the church, supposedly, but marriage has this additional layer of it that reflects God's covenant faithfulness. Now, think about that word for a minute, just with me here. Faithful. We are saved by grace through faith. Amen? Not of works, lest any man should boast. But what does that word faith mean? Most of us understand it through the filter of Hebrews 4, that it's evidence of things un- unseen. Uh, we believe in something we can't see, right? We believe in Jesus even though he's not in front of us. And this is absolutely true. I don't want to dismiss that, uh, that side of faith. But faith has what is called a range of meaning, the word faith. It has what's called a semantic range. And it can also mean loyalty, commitment, and allegiance, See, for a husband to be faithful or full of faith towards his wife does not mean he goes to another part of the country and never sees her yet still believes that she exists. That would be kind of an odd marriage, don't you think? 
I'm really faithful to my wife. Do you see her? No, but I still believe in her. Right? That's the wrong part of the semantic range of faith. It is to be allegiant and loyal and committed to your spouse. That's what faithful means. And this was actually the ancient Near East understanding of what it was to follow a God. More so than the believing in God you can't see, it was to be faithful and loyal and allegiant and committed to a God. Not just mental assent that they existed, but living a life of loyalty towards that God. So when we are saved by grace through faith, it means loyalty to Yahweh through his son Jesus by the Holy Spirit above all other idols in our life. It doesn't just mean going, yeah, Jesus exists. I think he's God. I think he's Savior. I'm good. It means living a life in which we are loyal to Yahweh, the Father God, through his son Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross by the Holy Spirit above all other idols in our lives. And this is what God saw in Abraham. He was faithful to God, Yahweh, above all other gods and idols. Because remember, just like in a marriage, faithfulness is not perfection. Spouses, think about this. Would you say that you're a faithful spouse? Yes. Does that mean you're a perfect spouse? Absolutely not. Just ask my wife, right? I'm faithful, and yet I'm not perfect. And this creates more freedom and understanding of what it is to be faithful to Jesus. Abraham was not perfect, but he stayed loyal to Yahweh above all others. So what does it mean then to be faithless? Well, it means to not be loyal, not to be committed, not to be allegiant, to look to other gods to fill the void in your life. And so God paints this picture perfectly in a really hard chapter that we're going to read about, speaking of Israel here in Ezekiel 16. And this will paint the picture for us as we moved into a much happier chapter in Isaiah 54. But let's start here first in Ezekiel 16, and we're going to read through a lot of the chapter. Ezekiel 16, verse 1. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. I feel like I'm in a Monty Python movie here. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Now guys, don't fight the imagery. Go with the imagery and think about this. This was a child that was cast out into a ditch. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. This is ancient Near East imagery and poetry speaking of a romantic salvation for a a woman who had been thrown out. From birth, she was thrown out and no one cared for her. And just like Boaz did for Ruth, the Lord God came alongside Israel and covered her and cared for her. And he promised himself to her and married her. He says, verse 9, Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. 
and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck, and I put a ring on your nose, all of you with nose rings, there's your biblical backing, okay? And earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. Is this a good life? Yeah. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. This is a picture painted of God's gracious love. His gracious love of Israel. She was abandoned just like the rest of the world, caught in sin, but God rescued her, cared for her, married her in covenant faithfulness and brought about her beauty, brought it out of her. But then look at verse 15. But you trusted, not in God, but in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines and on them played the whore. The like has never been nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey. You set it before them for a pleasing aroma. And so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had borne to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whorings so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Now I'm speaking it in a very soft tone, but if you read it in the voice that it's actually meant to be spoken of, I should be screaming at all of you. But that wouldn't be very helpful in our culture. <laughs> He's deriding Israel and saying to them, you took the freedom and the salvation I gave you and you used it to do whatever you wanted, to worship whatever gods and idols you wanted to worship. And he goes on and just continues to declare over and over again how sick this is. He says in verse 30, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Over and over again, he says, man, you just gave yourself to all these other things. The Lord, Yahweh, was not your priority. And this is the history of Israel, and I would say the history of most of us who have taken the gracious freedom of God and abused it in order to live a life for our own kingdom. They had idolatry in the midst. They literally were going to the temple to worship Yahweh and then going straight out of the temple and going and worshiping a different God in the same day. We know what that's like, some of us, don't we? we? We go to church and we carve out the time we have to go to church and then we go about our business the rest of the week worshiping whatever idol we can find to fulfill ourselves. And even worshiping multiple idols within the courts was not enough to make them go, maybe this isn't right. They did it willingly. They said, I'm part of the chosen people of God. I can continue living however I want. But what was the outcome? Well, look here with me at verse 37. Therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them that they may see all your nakedness. It's so odd to me uh, that we live in a culture now where everybody wants to uncover their nakedness on Instagram and Snapchat and everything else. And that was seen as nothing but shameful in the past. I mean, we are a society that j looks just like this. And that is seen as judgment when that happens here. 
not as something good. Verse 38, And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands and they shall throw down your vaulted chamber and break down your lofty places. Man, do I have to keep going? Oh, this is ugly, right? God gave them over to what they desired, to those idols. His judgment is not him just smacking around Israel. It's saying, you want that garbage, you can have it. And it's really, really sad. God would give them over to their adultery with their idols, but you might say, what does this have to do with me, Hans? I'm not out sacrificing my kids to idols, really. How much time do you spend in your children's sports as compared to walking them through family worship? Sports can be an idol. So can everything else we do in life. Good things can be an idol. Raising our own families above serving Christ, that can sometimes be an idol. Not always, but sometimes. And so these idols that we grow in allegiance for, success, popularity, sexuality, greed, comfort, or anything that we place above obedience to Jesus and his word, they can take a huge place in our lives. And lest we think we're too far away from this, look at verses 48 and 49. We've read this before. Here is their defining characteristic. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. This is verse 49. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. Okay, what country on this planet does that sound like? It has two letters. It spells us. Right? And so this, man, if we're not careful, we slide right into this, don't we? This is us in the Western church. And this becomes the horrific story of man's and specifically God's people's faithlessness. A good God was treated with contempt and disdain when all he had done was create, love, provide, and save. And because of this, humankind continued to bring forth offspring into the curse of death. And Israel was no different. God desired godly offspring from among his chosen people. He even says that's the whole point of marriage in Malachi. Why did the, why did the Lord make the two one with the measure of the Spirit in their midst for godly offspring, he says. And so it's as if God's chosen people, by their idolatry, are actually barren. They can't produce spiritually godly children. In their minds, it was as if they were cursed. Whew. This is not good news, is it? This is rough. But the amazing part is that even in this chapter, God's faithfulness and his grace is so far beyond anything we can comprehend. How many of you in your mind when you saw the eclipse had kind of figured out what it would look like? And then you saw it and it was so far above your ways and your thoughts. That's the grace of Jesus. We can try and comprehend it, but the reality is, is it's so far above anything we can even decide. So look with me at verse 59, and we'll finish off the chapter here. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sister's both your elder and your younger, and give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never open your mouth again because of your shame, 
when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord God. How on earth could God atone for all of this that we just read? All of this that I have done in my deceitfulness of sin that you have done. He would send his only begotten son in the flesh, Jesus, to live a sinless life. Portray the kingdom and its restoration in the midst of his ministry. And then be offered up freely just like the Old Testament sacrifices were for sin. And this plan was so successful that Jesus, after three days, rose in victory from death, conquering it, proving to all that saw him during his 40 days of resurrected life that he was and is the conquering king. Amen? He was the conquering king over the kingdom of darkness. Amen? Wake from your stupor, church. Amen? He is the conquering king. And he ascended his king to the right hand of the Father, interceding for us as we speak. And now his kingdom is at hand. It is among us awaiting completion. And for those that choose to acknowledge him as both Savior from sins and Lord of their lives, he enters into an eternal covenant of peace with you. And this is what is meant. Turn with me to Isaiah. This is what is meant by the end of Isaiah 53 on into Isaiah 54. Isaiah 53.10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Speaking of Jesus, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Israel thought there's no way we can produce godly offspring. It is as if we are barren spiritually. But God promises them that there will be offspring. Now let's take a look at our text for today, starting in Isaiah 54, and see what God says to the people of Judah and Israel. 54 verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. In other words, she didn't go through the process of laboring a baby. She didn't go through the process of bearing a baby. And yet, she can rejoice. Why? For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. This was kind of like saying, put an addition on your home because you're going to need a nursery, okay? Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Now we read this in our mindset, in our culture, in our worldview, and we go, okay, that's cool. That's good, I guess. But guys, you got to understand, for the Israelites, for the Jews who'd been in exile, this was water to a thirsty soul. This was the promise of God being fulfilled. This was the fact that the Lord has stayed true to his promises because of his covenant faithfulness, in spite of their covenant faithlessness. Write this down. The Lord has stayed true to his promises because of his covenant faithfulness. Now you might think this statement seems a bit redundant. But it is the only reason he has stayed true, his covenant faithfulness. Well, Hans, that's what covenant faithfulness means, to keep his promises. But I would ask you, how many people truly do that anymore today? 
total side note here, guys. I think that this is uh, something that needs to be addressed in the church today. Not just ours, not just my life, but generally. One of the defining characteristics of the church in the New Testament is to let their yes be yes and their no be no. To state something and then follow through on it. And I gotta admit, man, we have become really bad at that in the Western culture, haven't we? Right? We want to say yes to everybody so everybody loves us and then we end up having to say no at the last second to half of it. And the reality is, is that does not present the Lord well. We as Christians need to say no once in a while and then the things we say yes to, we need to do. We need to keep our promises because we are reflections of him and if we don't keep ours, then what does the world see? That God doesn't keep his promises. In small things, guys, how you manage your schedule, we must be purposeful in that. Because that's the small things, but God, he has stayed true in the giant things. His character is of covenant faithfulness. Now, a covenant is simply an agreement that brings out a a relationship of commitment. That's why marriage is a covenant. But even though his people Israel had been unfaithful to him time and time again, God's grace, his giving room for repentance, remained. And the only reason was because of his covenant faithfulness. If we ever get into the place where we think, yeah, yeah, I know it's because of him, but he's kind of lucky he got me on his team, right? That's going to be bad. It's going to go badly for us because it's not true. It's because of his covenant faithfulness. And I think the overarching theme I want you guys to understand today is this. God is true to his promises. Write that down. God is true to his promises. I want to show you for a second how amazing our God is. When we look at the Bible, we think of it being broken up by the Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, If you go to your uh, uh, table of contents and you look at it, it has the Old Testament and New Testament. Okay, But the original differentiation was not testament, it was covenant. Old covenant and new covenant. Long ago, manuscripts that were written would have broken down into Old Covenant and New Covenant. Say it with me. Old Covenant and New Covenant. So when we read the Bible, we're either reading in the Old Covenant or in the New Covenant. And we break these into what's called Mosaic Law Covenant and Messianic Covenant or New Covenant. Okay? It was given to Moses, the law, and the new one was given by Jesus. And these are what are spoken of in Jeremiah 31 31. In Jeremiah 31, 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant, the old one, that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, praise God, that's not just for the Israelites. Who's that for? Us. The new covenant is for anyone, Jew or Gentile, who wants to follow and be faithful to the God of the Bible, Yahweh. And so both of these covenants of the old and the new actually fall under one covenant. Okay, take a look up at the screen here. The old covenant was the Mosaic law. 
The new covenant is the messianic or Jesus-based covenant. And over the top of all of it is what's called the Abrahamic covenant. Say it with me, Abrahamic covenant. Okay, now we're going to get into some depth here for a second, so follow with me. That Abrahamic covenant started here, Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, before he renamed him Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. In other words, leave everything. Your God, your people, your life. Funny, somebody else said that we should lay down our life in order to follow him. Who is that? Jesus, same thing. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Well, that's pretty ambiguous. He follows it up by going a few chapters later. This is from Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. He tells them this as some clarification for what that covenant promise is. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He's not even my own child, basically. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Now, does anybody else uh, feel like this is themselves sometimes? God, I know you promised me this, but uh, I don't know how you can see it through. I mean, it's not happening, right? And behold, the word... Of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now remember, he's not really in the childbearing years at this point. Okay? And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. And so it wasn't that God tried one thing and then went, Oops. Old covenant didn't work. Let's try the new one and then did something else. All of this was planned and purposed, moving mankind towards the final promise covenant of the Abrahamic covenant. His original promise to Abraham was fulfilled through one man, the one talked about in Isaiah 53, Jesus, the suffering servant. And we are the offspring of that plan. Now, let me read to you from the New Testament. I know we're going through a lot of Scripture, but you're hopefully seeing how all the dots connect. I'm going to read to you from Romans 4. If you want to write that down in your notes, go ahead. Romans 4, verses 13 through 22. Paul, one who knew the Old Covenant well, who knew the Abrahamic Covenant, he's now speaking to the church at Rome, uh, Gentiles and Jews, telling them how this has been fulfilled. Romans 4, 13. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. Now, guys, this isn't just meaning faith where I just believe in God, even though I can't see him. This is that plus allegiance to that God. He's the father of all of us, Abraham is. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. 
In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that did not exist, like offspring. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old. So not childbearing years. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. God is true to his promises. Do you think Abraham is sitting in the bosom of the father laughing every time he sees the millions of children across the world sing Father Abraham? I mean, seriously, we laugh at that and we're like, if Father Abraham had many sons... Do you realize that every time we speak that truth, it makes Satan go, No! Because it's true. God stayed true to his promises. He produced offspring out of death. We, you and I, and the entire global church of true believers of Christ, we are the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. And I don't know about you, but that is a bit humbling for me. You, we, are the promises that God promised to Abraham. And therefore, we were what was promised to Israel too. And so God calls them in Isaiah to rejoice and sing. For while it seemed impossible that spiritual offspring would come, God proved faithful to his promise to all mankind. I wonder how often my lack of faith in God or my frustration or anger at God is simply due to me holding him responsible for unfulfilled promises that he never promised in the first place. Let me read that again. I wonder how often my lack of faith in God or my frustration or anger at him is simply due to me holding him responsible for unfulfilled promises that he never promised in the first place. These are the out-of-context promises we were discussing earlier. We say, God, you promised that I would be comfortable, successful, secure, wealthy, popular, and that I would have a lack of pain and discomfort in my life. How many of you have ever seriously had that cross your mind? Absolutely. I think most of you are lying right now. Raise your hand if that is how you thought at some point in your life. But did he promise these? No, he didn't. He promised that in the midst of a war between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, he would do whatever it takes, whatever it took to be victorious. He promised that he would draw us to himself. He promised that he would atone for our sins, removing the curse of death. He promised that he would regain his throne over all creation. And he promised that through his church, he would give the world a taste of the righteousness, justice, and compassion of his kingdom until he comes in fullness. God is true to his promises, amen? When we read his promises in the proper context, we understand there is not one promise that is dropped to the floor. God is true to his promises. He will be faithful even to fulfill the last promise of his return. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You ever struggle with whether or not the Lord's coming back? Hear the word of the Lord. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God is true to his promises. And so we can take comfort in these next verses back in Isaiah. Go back to Isaiah 54 with me. 
And we can take comfort starting in verse 4. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, and the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Thank you. Can I get another amen? amen? Man, if that doesn't stir your heart and give you goosebumps, you got to check your pulse. God uses a bit of hyperbole here, exaggerating that even the mountains, which can't be removed, we all know this, they will remain, they won't remain, but his promise, his vow, his covenant, love and faithfulness and peace will remain. Dear flock, cling to this promise. Hold on to it with everything you have. For every one of you that has answered the call to follow Jesus truly in this room, cling to that promise in the midst of your worst heartaches and pain. Because that promise will never go anywhere. And you have a down payment and a guarantee that it will be fulfilled. It's etched in stone. And this is what we see next. Look at verse 11. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Parents, Look at me for a second. You want peace for your children? Raise your hand. Teach them the promises of Jesus. Don't worry so much about getting into the right school so they can get to the right college, so they can get the proper job, so that they can get the uh, proper income, so that they can have enough money so that when they retire, they're good to go. That is the Western mindset. I got to make sure that they're financially secure. Guys, that could go away in an instant. Our grandparents knew that who went through the Great Depression. Well, for you, your great-grandparents. For me, my grandparents. But what will stay true are the promises of Jesus. Our children will have peace. In righteousness, he says, you shall be established and you shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear. You struggle with anxiety? Like I do? Rest on the promises of Jesus, the true promises of Jesus. We will not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near you. Guys, we have 
a down payment of the promises of Jesus right in front of us that I think so few of us ever turn to in those moments when we are anxious or fearful. And here's what it is. It's the church. Everybody write down, the church testifies to God's covenant faithfulness. The church testifies to God's covenant faithfulness. Now, I will fully admit, and I might even be one of the people that says this, you want peace and comfort and care? Uh, The last place you want to look is the church and pastors. That's kind of the attitude of our society, right? And many of us who've grown up in the church and been hurt by the church and been harmed by pastors, most of us would go, yeah, that's the last place I look to know that the promises of God are true. But guys, when we're looking in Isaiah 54, notice what he's saying there back in 11 and 12. Man, I will set you as stones in antimony and sapphires. I will make your foundation strong. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncle, and all your walls precious stones. You might be one who feels, as Isaiah states, afflicted, storm-tossed, and not comforted. You look around in our local world or the global world and we see the waves roaring around us. You look inside and you see the waves roaring within you. But God gives witness to his covenant faithfulness right in front of your eyes. And we often dismiss it. Because what he's talking about here is not just this book and reading the promises in here, but seeing the promises in living color sitting right next to you. I can already tell that some of you are zoning out and going, oh, yeah, yeah, another talk about the church. No, guys, this is the context of this scripture. The people sitting around you and our brothers and sisters at other churches and around the world, in looking at each other, we get to observe the very work of God in fulfilling his promises. Remember, God is true to his promises. Say it with me. God is true to his promises. You know how I know? The verses before us in Isaiah sound incredibly like someplace else in the Bible, and they speak of the church. What are the promises of God shown in? Turn with me to Revelation 21, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Keep your finger in Isaiah, but then go to Revelation and look at Revelation 21. And look at verse 19. This is speaking of the new Jerusalem, what we would classify as heaven. You'll hear so many Christians talk about, well, when I die, I go to heaven. Guys, the end of the story is not this random location somewhere that has a sign above it that says heaven. It is the new Jerusalem. It is the restored earth. That is where you want to end up. If you end up in a place called heaven, I hate to tell you this, but Jesus won't be there because he'll be existing in the new Jerusalem. We have to get that straight and get rid of Western deism. Christianity believes in the new Jerusalem. And look at verse 19 of chapter 21. Look what it says. The foundations of the wall of the city, New Jerusalem, were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth something I can't pronounce, the eleventh something else I can't pronounce, and then the twelfth amethyst, okay? All these things that I'm sure you ladies love and I have no idea what they are. 
And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. We read this and we go, cool, that sounds like a really cool place and a location and a building to hang out. No, that's not what he's talking about at all. Go back to the beginning of the chapter and read, say it with me, in context. Read in context. 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, again, not just heaven as a location, a restored heaven and a restored earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a, what's that word there? Bride. Who's the bride of Christ? Wait a minute. This is confusing. Adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his, what? People. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne says, everybody read it with me, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, he says, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now let's break down what is happening here. We got the bride of Christ no longer forsaken, but now restored to the beautiful position as the wife of the Most High God. What is referred to as the bride of Christ throughout the New Testament, you already said it, it is the church. And why is the church adorned as a bride? Well, let's take a look there at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the same wording as in Isaiah. Go back with me. Keep your finger here and go back with me to Isaiah 54. Look at verses 15 through 17. If any of you stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fires of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. In other words, he says, uh, I'm the authority over even weapons, and here's what I know about those weapons. I have also created the ravager to destroy. I'm the one that sent Babylon, he says. I I know what it is to destroy, but here's what I know, God says. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. I guarantee you that by the Holy Spirit or just by his own knowledge, John, writing Revelation, is laying down words that are based on the same promises that were given in Isaiah. And so Isaiah can properly say then, because of the work that God has done, he can say right there at the beginning of 55, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Guys, being a Christian is not about saying a prayer. It's not about having a one-time mental assent that 
clicks the ticket to get you into heaven when you die. It is about being faithful to Jesus Christ because he's faithful to you. It's about living a life that is in the midst of a covenant marriage with the God you vowed your soul to. It is living for Christ in every part of your lives. Making mistakes, yes, because we're sinners saved by grace. But remaining faithful in the midst. And the next morning, just as when I am uh, a mess up in my, own, in my own marriage, I don't get up and pack my bags and move on and hang my head and go, well, I guess this marriage isn't going to work out. I wake up the next morning and I recovenant with my wife and I say, honey, we are going to grow. That's the walk of a Christian. Not perfect, but faithful. And God is calling us to recognize that we spend so much time striving for things that don't satisfy. That's why we think his promises are about success and popularity and boyfriends and girlfriends and wives and husbands and houses and cars. He's never promised any of that. We're always trying to comfort ourselves and make ourselves secure in things and stuff and false identities and blah. False popularity. Have you seen my 300 friends on Facebook? It doesn't matter. All the while, the thing that is secure is the fact that we are in Christ together. Secure in our relationship with him individually and in the midst of one another, we are the bride of Christ that will one day be all that remains of humanity in a restored world. The Bible speaks of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee to eternal life. Where does the Holy Spirit reside First, I want you to point to yourself, and then I want you to look to your left and your right and realize it resides in them as well. That is where the guarantee resides. And so when the guarantee in your own heart that you know that you have faithfulness to Jesus and he has faithfulness to you, when that drops, which it does in me so often, my question for you is where do you look? Where do you look for that additional guarantee? You look to one another. Let's go back and look at Revelation in 21 again. You can let go of Isaiah. We're done in Isaiah. Revelation 21, look at verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Again, who is that? The church. Who is that? The church. It's us. And everyone who follows Christ outside of this building. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Artists have done a fantastic job, much better than I ever could. I can barely draw stick figures. I'm trying to render what this looks like. You can go look it up online, the New Jerusalem. And here's what you'll see. You'll either see a giant cube that's all gold and shiny, or you'll see kind of a tiered tower. It looks like a birthday cake with lots of jewels, nice and shiny. Here's what I want somebody to do one day, is I want somebody to say, I'm about to paint a picture of this verse, this set of verses. And then I want them to go get a camera and I want them to take a picture of their church. 
because that's the new Jerusalem. That's it, I'm out, right? You look around and you go, wait a minute. This is the new Jerusalem? No, this is not yet the fullness of the new Jerusalem. This is the down payment. This is the guarantee. You know how I know this? Well, look at what he's describing here. He says there's gates and there's foundations. And what is written on those? The names of the tribes of Israel and the names of the apostles. Okay, last place I'm going to turn you, I promise you, go to Ephesians with me. Go to Ephesians with me and look at Ephesians 2, 17. These are the words of Paul and ultimately the word of the Lord. Ephesians 2, 17. And he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, both Jews and Gentiles. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Meaning, okay, pause here for a second. Who's he talking to here? Who is the book of Ephesians written to? One local church, the church at Ephesus. And he says, you guys, this is talking about you, and you are citizens and saints with the members of the household of God, the greater church. But he is specifically talking to the local church right here. And notice what he says, verse 20. Built on the foundation of what? The apostles and the prophets. Speaking of Israel, the old covenant and the new covenant. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, wait a minute, are we talking about the church or a building here? The church, the people, being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We, the church, and our relationships with one another right now are the very thing that witnesses to the world of the covenant faithfulness of God. Guys, if you go out and you preach the gospel, praise God, because we have to do that. But if you don't ever draw those people into the church and they wander about aimlessly in life, never being part of the body of Christ, what are you calling them to? They're going to show up at the New Jerusalem going, whoa, where did all these people come from? Right? What a terrible way to live in this life. Not realizing that they have the very promise of God seated on their left and their right and in front of them and behind them. The New Jerusalem, the church, the bride of Christ being joined together in the present tense right here. Look at what he's saying. He's saying it's happening right now. You're being joined together. You're growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's present tense. You're being built together as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And God is witnessing to the end fulfillment of his promises in the complete New Jerusalem by the construction that is going on right now. How many of you drive by construction sites and you're like, "Mm." and then, you know, like nine months later, the building's done and you're like, whoa, where did that come from? That building's amazing. Has that ever happened to anybody? Right? I used to be in construction. I I worked on a $6 million project up in uh, Tacoma. And man, every day it's like, geez, have we got the red iron in yet? Man, this is so slow. It's going to take us forever. And then one day I looked at it and I'm like, wow, the building's done. I didn't even recognize it was happening in the midst. I was so locked down in the problems and the issues and the drama. Doesn't that sound like the church? The church stinks. We're all full of drama. We're all broken, right? No, no. 
pull back a little bit and look at what's happening. Church roofs are going on in Africa. People are coming to Jesus. Laveau is having new visitors come into his church and be saved in Haiti. We got brothers and sisters in every corner of the world. Visitors are here today. The church is being built. Amen? New Jerusalem is being constructed. And if we would pull back for a second and look at it, we would see how amazing God is that he is fulfilling his promises because God is true to his promises. Amen? Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Reading again in context, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, Oh, great. Okay, I would love to have some power of Jesus so I could go through my work day tomorrow and so I could get through our schedule this week. No, what's the power for? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, meaning in the church, that you, the church, being rooted and grounded in love. What is his power for, guys? Loving one another. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I know you need power to love me. And sometimes I need power to love you. that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Notice he's not talking about an athletic competition here, guys. Notice he's not talking about getting through your week. He's talking about an amazing eclipse that the world sees when they should look at the church and see us loving one another. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Can I get an amen? In context, what Paul is hoping for is us to be strong enough to love one another so that we might give true witness to the faithfulness of God's covenant promise. In this, we observe the very covenant faithfulness of God. And this is why Paul calls the church, just like he calls us in chapter, or he calls them in chapter 4, just like he calls us, to the unity of the Spirit, to love one another. Guys, we are the lucky ones. I want you to pause for a second. And I used to hate it when pastors made me do this. But I want you to look at the people around you. Take a second and look around. Even you, Shane. Even you. Look around. Marked on the forehead of every one of these people, if they are true followers of Christ, and only you know that in your heart, you see the promised seal of God's covenant faithfulness. We are the lucky ones. We get to observe in one another the very covenant faithfulness of God. And this is why Paul calls us to do this, to love one another. We are in the midst of the work God is doing to completely fulfill his promise. It's not yet. We still have problems. We're still broken. But it is moving forward. And we are being fashioned into that temple that won't be complete until Christ's return. But we are setting in place the metaphorical stones, the foundation pieces that will one day be the fullness of the new Jerusalem. Does that change your view of hanging out with one another a little bit more? Of exhorting one another daily? And so God calls us to enter into this new covenant with him. 
For those of you that are followers of Christ that have looked at the church and found nothing but heartache and pain. You've delved into relationships with Christians and found nothing but hurt. I want to call us to rise above the fray. To rise above all the noise and the distractions of what we've encountered before and may even encounter again. And cast our eyes on the kingdom of Christ. I want to call us to be part of the work Christ is doing in laying these precious stones as a foundation of the kingdom that will fully one day come. Peter said this in one of his letters, you also, each member of the church, like living stones are being built into a spiritual house house to be a holy priesthood. Today, hear the words of your compassionate creator. The mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication is from me. God is true to his promises. Amen. For those of you that are not followers of Christ, or maybe wonder if you are actually in covenant with him, I want to remind you of how this section started out, that the tent pegs of God's people, of his family, the family of the Lord had to be moved, they had to be enlarged. And the reason for that is because through Christ's atoning work on the cross, in dying for your sins and mine, he paved the way for you to become one with the Father and be adopted into his family as his child. And this is what Christ meant when he said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or dwelling places. If it were not so, Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Guys, it's not a giant mansion in the sky where we each have our own suite. In ancient Near East, one family would live in close quarters with one another and they'd each have a dwelling place within the larger structure. That's what he's talking about, the New Jerusalem. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. And what is that way to make sure that you are founded in Christ's kingdom today and for all eternity? Well, it's the same question that they asked him. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, Thomas, and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The only way to your creator, the Father God, is through his son Jesus, the anointed King and Savior. Today you must seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. If you would like to find out more about what that looks like, you have two options. Well, actually three. One, open your Bible. Two, come back and talk with me during the next set of worship and I'll talk to you about discipleship. Or three, and this is actually what I hope for the most, Simply keep coming. Join into the life of this church. Slowly but surely be discipled in the ways of Jesus the Christ. Very soon, sometime in the next few weeks, we will be restarting our community groups and our discipleship groups. And we desire to be a church. Our leadership desires so badly for this to be a church where we are discipling one another to make disciples of Jesus Christ by teaching equipping and sending. And we've been spending all summer trying to figure out how to make that work the best for this church, the people sitting around you. And I desire for you to 
keep coming back, to join into the life of this church, and slowly but surely be discipled in the ways of Jesus. Today, Christ calls us to the covenant of peace. Our question today is, will we stand firm in that covenant today?